Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Today, we bring you an Astro Soundbites Beyond episode highlighting astronomers who identify as indigenous around the world. And we call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I am on stolen Aas tribe land as I record this episode. I am not an indigenous person, but I am an ally. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally. And I am on stolen Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri, and Bunurong land as I record this episode. I am not an indigenous person, but I am an ally. You're listening to Beyond Episode 85, Indigenous Astronomy Part 1, Living Descendants of the First Astronomers. We wish to acknowledge these tribes as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and indigenous elders of other communities who may be here today. It was actually recently Invasion Day last week in Australia, which marks the day when English boats first arrived and established camp with the intention of colonization in Australia. So I think the timing of this episode is really important. But I'm also curious why we don't do too many land acknowledgements in the USA. I feel like it's a lot less common than in Australia. Yeah, when we were first talking about this episode, you brought land acknowledgements up and I thought that that was a great idea and also I wasn't really sure why we don't. I know there are things on websites like at Ohio State, the School of Environment and Natural Resources, they do have a land acknowledgement statement, but generally we don't comment on it at conferences, talks, and general events where people gather like in Australia. However, I think that it's something that we should do a bit more. And before I keep going on a tangent, we should probably define what Indigenous people are. Yeah, that's a great question. And I completely agree. And I completely agree with your sentiment on land acknowledgements in the U.S., So when we say indigenous astronomers, and actually a lot of the interviewees in this episode will discuss this even more in detail and have a much better way of describing this, when we say indigenous astronomers, we mean this as a very general umbrella term, basically for people who are native to a particular land before that land was colonized by someone outside. So to name a few indigenous populations... Native Americans, Native Hawaiians, Torres Strait Islander people, and there are countless other indigenous groups. And we're very lucky that we have a subsample of indigenous astronomers from, I think every indigenous astronomer that we interview in this episode is from a different tribe. So it's really exciting to learn more about them through these interviews. Yeah, I think that it's super interesting. And If you're just as interested as we are in this, this is actually going to be a two-part series on Indigenous astronomers and Indigenous astronomy. 
And in this episode, we'll highlight indigenous astronomers who are ancestors of the first astronomers. In the second episode, we're going to dive more into what indigenous astronomy is and how indigenous knowledge can contribute to astronomy research we do today. So we've interviewed indigenous astronomers from around the world about their experiences, research, and how their identities have impacted their journeys to science. So first up is an interview that we had with Kirsten Banks, a graduate student at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for joining us. We're really, really excited to have you be a part of this episode. The first thing is, can you introduce yourself a little bit, your pronouns, your position, institution, the tribe that you're a part of? Absolutely. So my name is Kirsten Banks, almost Dr. Kirsten Banks, really close to that final little update in my uh, title. I'm doing a PhD in astrophysics at the University of New South Wales. My pronouns are she, her, but also they're them is perfectly fine for me too. And I've been working in physics and astronomy for the past nine years. I'm also from the Wiradjuri group in central New South Wales, and I'm a very, very proud Wiradjuri woman. Amazing. So where is Wiradjuri? Is it near Sydney or...? No, it's a little bit far from Sydney. So you go west, basically, from Sydney. You go past the Blue Mountains, and then you're in Wiradjuri country. It's a big area in central New South Wales. Did you grow up there? No, I did grow up on Guringai country up in the northern beaches of Sydney. Super interesting. Cool. Okay, so tell us a bit about your journey into astronomy. How did you get into astronomy? Oh, my journey into astronomy uh, started when I was about in year nine or year 10 in high school. My science teachers, they took my entire year group on an excursion to go see a documentary about the Hubble Space Telescope at this massive IMAX theater in Sydney. And I remember sitting in there watching this incredible documentary about this fantastic telescope, realizing how much information we can learn from the universe just by looking at light and seeing these incredible images just really hooked me onto space and astronomy. And I realized, yes, I need to do something in space or to do with space in the space sector. So I started to do more physics at school and then went on to go do a university degree where I did a Bachelor of Science with a major in physics. I did actually initially want to do aerospace engineering, but when I looked at the course catalog, I realized that the first time you actually do any aerospace engineering subjects was in like the fourth year of the degree. And I'm like, that's, that's, I feel like I'm being cheated here. I'm doing, I want to do this degree. I want to do it from day one. Uh, not realizing then that you need to learn the foundations to get to a certain point, but that's what made me change to physics instead, because at least I'd be doing physics from day one. I don't know if it's just the similarities in our name, but <laughs> I also started out doing aerospace engineering. I did it for two years, and then I was like, nah, I'm going to swap over to physics. Bye! So... <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting to hear like the trajectory of like wanting to do one thing and still kind of staying within the space kind of sector and moving forward. Very cool. Absolutely. And I realized that doing physics is just understanding the foundations of astrophysics, really. 
And so from there, I went on and did an honors year researching the growth of massive galaxies and how they would grow by consuming their neighbors, which was very fun. I tried to call my honors thesis a tale of galactic cannibalism, but my supervisor <laughs> said no, which was very upsetting. <laughs> uh, but I worked it into my final presentation, so I still got to say it. But then after that, I was encouraged to do a PhD. And at the time I was doing lots of science communication and starting to really build up my career there and realized, actually, you know what, doing a PhD would be a really good idea to stay present in the field and learn more about what the academic process is like to share that view through the scientific and uh, SciComm lens. Yeah, I guess that leads me to a follow-up question is, how did you get into science communication itself? Was there something that kind of spurred you into that path? Yeah, definitely. Fun fact, I used to hate public speaking in school. Oh, whoa. It would terrify me. I would like shake and sweat. I'm like, oh, I don't like this at all. But in first year of uni, I reconnected with an old friend from primary school and he took me to Sydney Observatory on a date. I didn't realize <laughs> it was a date at the time, but we went there on a date and when we were in the tour, it was a during the day tour. So we still got to go look at the telescopes and we actually got to look at Venus through the telescope during the daytime, which was really cool. And the tour guy was talking about the phases of Venus. And I mentioned, oh, would that be the same for Mercury? Because it's also closer to the sun than we are. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about space and stuff. And at the end of the tour, he says, hey, you know what? I think you'd be a pretty good tour guide here. You should apply for a job. I'm like, all right, sure. <laughs> forgetting that I don't like public speaking um, but I applied for the job and got it a few months later and then I fell in love with talking about space so that's really where that science communication journey started was taking a chance and getting a job at Sydney Observatory as a tour guide. I have a follow-up question about that so going from being kind of terrified of public speaking to being a tour guide was there a transition in your ability to speak with people were you still terrified when you first started and then you kind of became comfortable with it what was that like going from like I don't want to talk to anyone to <laughs> I'm talking to a group of people I think the difference between doing public speaking in school versus being trained up to do public speaking in a job is that you get the methodology clear mm. with the job. Like they want you to do it a certain way, which is very fair. They want to have a standardized tour experience for all different people from different tour guides within the company. Whereas you didn't really get that in school. You maybe would get a five point dot point outline of what you should do. It's like, this, this, is, this is really helpful. Uh, I don't like mm. this. But having that methodology and those clear structure of how to do a tour. Also within the training, I would be shadowing other tour guides and seeing what they do, learning from their experiences. And I'd have someone shadowing me for at least three or four tours as well. Being there just to fall back on just in case I'm like, go all deer in headlights. I don't know how to answer this question, what do I do next? So there was a really good process there of training up where I started to feel very comfortable. I can follow rules. I can follow procedures really well. And so that really worked for me. And then like, yeah, just started to make it my own over the years that I worked there and fell in love with it. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And then how did you transition into doing more like online, social media, astronomy, science communication? What did that look like? Oh, that one's a bit of a 
weird one. It kind of just started to happen a little bit. I remember I met with a uh, an academic, Dwayne Hamaker. Oh, yeah. Who was a prominent leader in Indigenous astronomy research. And he heard about my background and that I was a Wiradjuri because uh, another Indigenous astronomer at Sydney Observatory, Willie Stevens, was also there and had connections with Dwayne. And so conversations were had and Dwayne was like, oh, actually, I'm running a series on Cosmos magazine showcasing Indigenous astronomers or astronomers who are Indigenous. Would you like to be part of the feature? I'm like, sounds kind of cool. And so that kind of pushed me on a trajectory where people started to know who I was, started to follow me on social media. I made a Twitter account as from the recommendation from my partner. Uh, and he also suggested I should join TikTok later on in 2020. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. I'll do that. Give it a try. <laughs> and yeah, from there, I just kept wanting to share my passion for space and astronomy with as many people as possible. And social media was a great way to do that. Amazing. We're actually going to interview Dwayne for the next part of this episode series on Indigenous astronomy itself. So exciting. He's amazing. He's really nice. I like him a lot. <laughs> so I guess circling back to being an Indigenous astronomer, how has that identity affected your trajectory? I think it's a bit of a twofold thing. So I've always known that I was Aboriginal, mm -hmm. but throughout my schooling, through primary school, high school, we didn't really know a lot about where exactly we came from uh, because there's a lot of trauma from previous generations so they weren't allowed to talk about culture weren't allowed to practice language pretty tragic stuff yeah so we didn't have a lot of that knowledge passed down through the generations I didn't really learn much about that but I knew that I was Aboriginal and that my dad would always say that's something to be proud of we're proud of that like, okay cool so that was always ingrained in me from a very young age but I didn't understand much about it until I started working at Sydney Observatory met up with Willie Stevens, met up with Dwayne Hamaker, and also I walked past a map of Indigenous Australia. Many people may have seen this one before. You got all the colours around showing all the different groups and nations, Aboriginal nations within the land we now call Australia. And I thought to myself, surely there's a way to find out which group my family comes from. And it, it turned out to be quite easy in the end, which is really cool. I found out that we're from Wiradjuri and started to talk more to my relatives and understand more about the culture and then started to learn more about Aboriginal astronomy as well. And that opened my eyes to a whole new perspective of the night sky. Like I knew I loved space and astronomy and looking at the constellations and all that fun stuff, but then realized that there is so much deeper meaning from a different perspective, from the Wiradjuri perspective, just my mind was blown all over again. I have a question. And I know that we could probably have multiple episodes on this question that I'm about to ask you, but what are like one or two things that really stuck when you started kind of learning about Indigenous astronomy that really kind of stuck out that you were either really in awe or impressed by you know, essentially your ancestors and the work that they had done. Yeah, I think the one thing that always stands out, and I always bring it up whenever people talk about similar things, is people up in the Northern Territory, the Yolngu people, they would have a ceremony every single time Venus would come back around as the morning star. That's not a 
common thing to happen. Like the Venus coming around at the same time does not happen at the same time each year, like the stars. The stars are very constant. They come around the same time every single year. The planets, not so much because they move relative to the stars. They're closer to us. So they move faster. And so I was very, very impressed with how they were able to know exactly when to have this ceremony when Venus comes back. And talking to an elder, this is part of a book that I read, the author, when talking to an elder, the elder simply said, we just count the days. They just know the days, they count the days, and they know when Venus is coming back as the morning star. Super impressive. Everything without telescopes, without any sort of equipment, they were such keen observers of the night sky that they just knew. That just sounds so impressive. Right? Like, oh, we just we just count the days. It's it's nothing. Yeah, it's, it's easy. <laughs> we just count it. <laughs> and, and also the fact that they have they pass it down through oral knowledge and maybe paintings as well. Like, there's no written records, which I think is where some of the disjunct comes from modern scientists sometimes thinking that indigenous science or indigenous astronomy isn't as high a level because they weren't written down but like this knowledge is still very much there and alive without the need to write it down in a logbook like that's still it's still science it's still observation measurement and testing I think that's actually a big theme for this episode and I guess we'll get into it more in the next episode as well with Dwayne but like where people don't necessarily always take Indigenous science seriously. And I think maybe it stems more from what you're talking about, where it's it's just different. It's a different way of thinking about science. And yeah, having science being passed down orally, we've listened to our lectures and stuff. and But I guess we're seeing it on a whiteboard. Exactly. Well, we have conversations with academics and like, oh, cool. Yeah, that, that's knowledge and that we passed down. But the idea that it's not science bugs me yeah it still is I agree I think that it's quite interesting too and I would argue that in some ways it's harder because if if you're passing something down orally that means that you have to know that thing whoever is it is being passed down to has to know it basically like the back of their hand right because now Mm. they're going to have to pass it down whereas you know when you write things down we can basically brain dump it yeah. <laughs> and say, okay, I'll go look at that later. Absolutely. I don't know. I find that really impressive because that means that they had to know, which would make sense if, you know, you're talking to an elder and they're saying, oh, we just count the days. Like, no big deal. Mm. It's... Yeah, the retention of knowledge is so impressive. Yeah. And I guess the way that you study it presents itself more as a social science because y- you probably have to interview elders and, like, actually go meet with people and ask mm. them questions Versus just like opening up a book when they are both science. It's just like a different way of getting the knowledge. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's super interesting. One thing I wanted to circle back to really quickly, I should know this. Sorry if this is a really trivial question, but like the use of Aboriginal versus Indigenous, is there a difference? And like, Mm. how do you discern when to use which adjective, I guess? So... From my understanding and from what I believe, Indigenous refers to all Indigenous peoples across the world. It's kind of a globalizational type of term, whereas Aboriginal is specific for 
Indigenous peoples from mainland Australia mm-hmm. and its neighbouring islands and whatnot. However, I would always actually deter people from using the word Aboriginal to refer to us as a whole group because it's a bit of a colonial term in a way, mm. in the sense that by calling us all Aboriginal, it is in a way taking away our national identity of Wiradjuri, for example. So I say I'm a Wiradjuri woman, I'm not an Aboriginal woman, I'm a Wiradjuri woman, that's important to me. So whenever you're referring to a specific peoples or person, I would always recommend using where they actually come from Mm. and who they identify as from those groups, because that is way more impactful than the generalized term of Aboriginal. Thanks so much for answering that. And then I guess I also wanted to ask, in your experience kind of getting to know your tribe and looking back into your ancestors' history, did you learn about any Rawadjuri science or astronomy knowledge that had been passed down and what did that look like? Yeah, definitely. So my favorite Wiradjuri star story is of the dark emu called Gugoman in our language. So when you look into the Milky Way galaxy, when it's a clear, dark, dark sky, you can see like dark patches within the Milky Way galaxy, which we would know as astronomers are from lanes of dust and gas in the Milky Way galaxy that's blocking the light from more distant stars. It's not an absence of stars, it's just abundance of gas and dust but when you look closely at the patterns that those dark patches make you can see this massive emu shape that stretches right across the sky it is absolutely beautiful to see once you see it you can't unsee it but the story behind it is really cool we actually use it to know when it's the right time to go looking for emu eggs So its position in the night sky indicates what different stage of the annual cycle that the emus are currently in. So if they're kind of in one position, they might be running around looking for a mate. When the Milky Way moves a bit higher in the sky, the body of the emu, actually our view of it transforms into an egg in a nest. And that indicates that now eggs are in the nest and we can go looking for emu eggs. And then later on, it turns over and it means a different thing. And it works. And it's worked for thousands of years. That's amazing. And when is it visible? Oh, it's visible pretty much all year round, more or less, except for in the summer. Because the head of it, <clears throat> the head of it is actually right underneath the Southern oh, Cross. Okay. So you can always see like the head and the neck. Uh, but in winter is the best time to see it in Australia. It makes me so sad because I'm not in Australia. How am I going to see this? <laughs> well, I was thinking you're coming to New Zealand, so maybe we could look for it, Kirsten. But in April? Oh, yeah. I will look for it. April should be okay. So around April, May, the emu gogomen is kind of like on the horizon looking like it's an emu running along the ground just after sunset. So later in the night, you'll see it go higher and higher. So definitely keep an eye out for it when you're in New Zealand. Oh, that is so cool. And such an amazing thing for your ancestors to have used for so many years. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. It seems like that astronomy was very interconnected. Just from the two stories that you've told us, it seems like it's very interconnected to basically the way that people lived and agriculture in one and then religious ceremonies in the other. And I was wondering, is that a similar theme with indigenous science where it's more interconnected than perhaps, you know, when Western science, we tend to have, you know, this is 
X knowledge and we're looking at it for X reason and it doesn't quite connect to necessarily what we're doing day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is all connected when it comes to indigenous science and culture. The land connects to the sea, to the sky, to the people, to the animals. It's all a holistic understanding and knowledge. And I think we can learn a lot from that too. Yeah. So at some point, someone had to figure out basically that there's this emu in the sky and it corresponds to this this pattern. Is there anything currently happening in your culture where people are learning new things in astronomy in particular or in any other part of science? Oh, I wish I could tell you I'm really not sure because my brain has been under a rock called my PhD for the past <laughs> four years. <laughs> fair, very fair. <laughs> but I have no doubt there's still knowledge growing because we're always learning new things every single day. That's awesome. I feel like I've learned so much. So my last question for you is what are your plans for after your PhD? You're finishing up in 38 days as we record this interview today. It's a little terrifying and exciting, both equally terrifying and exciting. So I'll definitely continue doing lots of science communication. I've taken a bit of a break because this is the end of the PhD and I need to focus on that. But definitely will be doing a lot more science communication in the years to come. But I've also applied for a postdoc, which I'm hoping I might get, which will be very exciting. I didn't plan on doing a postdoc until I saw the job, job opportunity come up for this particular one. But I've applied. I might stay in academia. We'll see. But I'm excited to see what happens in this year. We are now in 2024. I'm excited to see what comes of this year. <laughs> Either way, whatever you end up doing, I'm sure that it'll be great. Postdoc or anything else. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited. Lots of exciting things to come. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for taking the time to do this interview. I really appreciate it. And we learned so much. Oh, my pleasure. It's been great being here. And next, we have a mini-interview from Crystal DiNapoli, who is an Indigenous astronomer, writer, and host of the Indigenuity podcast. The audio is a little bit rough on this one, so we want to apologize in advance, but it's definitely worth the listen. First off, I want to start off the interview with asking what your name, affiliation, and pronouns are, and also how you identify as an indigenous astronomer. My name's Crystal Dinopoli. I identify as a Gomorrah woman. So my family are from Tamworth region around New South Wales, but we're sort of all over actually a lot of New South Wales and Queensland. So I belong to one of the, the biggest Aboriginal communities in Australia, which is really cool. And my pronouns are she, her, they. Awesome, thanks. Could you also tell us how being Indigenous has affected your trajectory through astronomy? It's affected my trajectory in the way that I guess I'm, I'm very aware of the narratives that are often taught when teaching astronomy. And quite often, I feel like in my classroom, especially what I've learned through university, is a form of astronomy that's coming from a very specific part of the world. So we tend to really just acknowledge sort of like Eurocentric astronomers and their contributions. And so for me, especially being so just enamored by our tens of thousands of year long history of doing astronomy, I feel like for me, it's been uh, a really high priority 
to make sure that I'm challenging those narratives and also trying to educate the greater Australian public on just how ingenious our knowledge systems are. Oh, I love that. I definitely think that it would be huge to have a better understanding of just how astronomy actually began and not just through the same cultural lens. So my last question for you is what piece of advice would you give to young Indigenous people interested in astronomy? My advice to young Indigenous people interested in astronomy would be to acknowledge that it's our communities who have been the world's first astronomers. We have some of the most deadly ingenious forms of astronomy seen in the world. And many of these discoveries might often you hear in your classroom that it's, you know, some random white dude from Europe. Um, you'll actually find that many of our communities have paved the way with these forms of knowledge and in particular things like variable stars, for example. So I would just tap into culture and what is at your core and to carry through your astronomy studies with that pride knowing that you are continuing a legacy of the world's first astronomers awesome i love that thank you so much for interviewing with us and next we have an interview with hilding nielsen who is an indigenous astronomer and an assistant professor in the department of physics and physical oceanography at the memorial university of newfoundland and labrador so thanks so much again, Hilding, for agreeing to do this. Do you mind introducing yourself, your institution, your pronouns, and also how you identify as an Indigenous astronomer? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. My name is Hilding Nielsen, he, him. I am a professor in the Department of Physics and Physical Oceanography at Memorial University in Newfoundland. I am the lone astronomer in my department. I am a member of the Halibu First Nation as a Mi'kmaq nation in Eastern Canada. I grew up here in Newfoundland. So is the tribe in Newfoundland or which part? Yeah, it's based on the island of Newfoundland, mostly on the west coast of the island. So for anyone who might be familiar, you probably might have seen pictures of Gross Morn around that area. So tell us a little bit about your journey into astronomy. How did you become interested in astronomy and choose it as a career? I wish I could say I had this inspirational moment, but I really didn't. You know, I, I, you know, I grew up watching the skies, you know, the west coast of Newfoundland is incredibly dark sky, so you could see a lot of great sights. But when I went to university, I was planning on doing engineering, except when I went to university, I couldn't get into engineering courses because of some bureaucratic changes in the program at the time. So instead, I picked up an astronomy course. And this astronomy course, you know, it was taught by this really eccentric, uh, older astronomer. But, you know, it was really interesting is that you got to see all the different questions you know, and that's what astronomy is, is really a detective novel. I really, I really like that. There's so much we get to see and pretend, I think we know, but then there's even more we just don't. And that's kind of how I fell into it. And did you take this course at a university in Newfoundland or like, where did you take your first astronomy course? So I took my first astronomy course at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So just on the other, just one province over. Halifax, I've heard, is really amazing. I've never been, but I was living in Montreal for a while, so I should have made it over to that side, but didn't. It's a bit of a journey from Montreal to Halifax, but it's it's fun if you get a chance. Yeah, I've heard it's really beautiful. Great. So would you be able to tell us a bit about your research as well and what it looks like as a professor at your university, what your experience so far there has been like? Yeah, I started here as a professor only a year and a half ago. Before that, I was teaching at the University of Toronto. Here, uh, I've been working on research in variable stars, classical Cepheids, stuff like that, and Meyer variables. I have a rebuilding my research program on 
extrasolar planet modeling and stellar atmosphere characterization. Since the lockdowns, I've been working on other issues around thinking about how we could bridge indigenous astronomies and traditional Western astronomies through concepts like the Drake equation, SETI, technosignatures, and things like that. That's super interesting. Yeah, I guess that kind of leads me to my next question then, because a couple of the other indigenous astronomers we were talking to actually pointed out to us that variable stars was kind of one example of where indigenous astronomy actually really useful even today, just, just one of the many. What is indigenous astronomy and what did indigenous astronomy look like within the Mi'kmaq nation? I'm pretty sure you get a lot of different definitions from different people, but yeah. to me, indigenous astronomy, how indigenous peoples viewed the night sky, interacted with it through their own methods of learning and understanding. That can mean very different things for different nations because there's no one indigenous knowledge. So there's no one indigenous astronomy. Mm-hmm. For many of Mi'kmaq peoples, it's relates to how we view stories and how we look at the night sky as part of our relations. Whether it is the great bear and the hunt, whether it is Mi'kmaq moons, whether it is some, you know, the Milky Way, they all come through different relationships and different perspectives and different understandings. We didn't have telescopes until colonization. So the perspective is very much a different relationship particularly in the time domain, which hence, I think for many of the other interviewers talking about variable stars, plays a big role because indigenous peoples detected and observed variable stars long before they were quote unquote discovered by Western astronomers. So I think that's a lot of how it comes together through these methodologies. And these methodologies help influence different ways of thinking about how we do Western science. The Mi'kmaq elder Albert Marshall helped coin a phrase called two-eyed seeing. This idea is, you know, one one lens is Western science, one lens is indigenous knowledges. And like bringing two two lenses together, you get a deeper and more complete perspective of what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And so the elder was bringing this together to help bridge the two worlds. And I think this offers a, another way of looking at the night sky and the universe and how our understanding of it by thinking about these different methodologies. We tend to think of Western astronomy through this lens of objectivity. Mm-hmm. I observe something, you should be able to observe something. I do an experiment, you should be able to reproduce that experiment. But also there's this ability that we live in relationships. So how I observe and interact with the phenomenon is going to be different from other people's relationship with that. And then there's the other ideas like hierarchy and nature. You know, in Western civilizations, we tend to think of humans as the apex of nature. We are somewhat separate from nature in many respects in the Western situation. For many indigenous peoples, including the Mi'kmaq, animals, plants, water, air, or kin, you know, it's familial relation. And so if you have a familial relation, then so are the stars familial. So for many First Nations, the stars are ancestors. We could bring these methods together to think about Western science and our, you know, our journal writing of papers and, and maybe in different ways and come up with new perspectives that will help influence and guide our next generation experiments and theories and so on. This relation between the way that we as individuals experience something is something that never really gets talked about in astronomy. It's all very objective and there's not really any room for subjectivity usually, maybe in like how to phrase a sentence in a paper, but not in the actual thing that we're trying to quantify. I guess that also kind of naturally leads to the next question, which is how has being an indigenous astronomer affected your view on the field of astronomy? And I think maybe you mentioned a bit about this in in the previous question, but kind of in general, how have you felt like that experience has influenced your experience within astronomy? I think there are two ways. I think the first is I'm more acutely aware of the interaction between astronomy and colonialism. Mm -hmm. 
whether it's telescopes on mountains or land-grant universities, or just how we talk about outer space, you know, going to the moon and Mars. Mm -hmm. Those issues are very much at the forefront and I think are rarely, are not talked about enough in, in our guiding principles with how we do things like telescopes or how we do space travel or space exploration. Mm-hmm. The other way is thinking about, you know, how can we use these meth- indigenous methods of knowing to reevaluate some of our earlier science. And like for me, a particular interest is the Drake equation. Yeah. You know, the Drake equation is this thought experiment that sort of, it was really a nesting doll where you're just sort of peeling away the different layers to, break, to to ask how many quote unquote civilizations there are in our galaxy that we could communicate with. Yeah. But when Frank Drake came up with this equation in, in what, the 1950s, height of the Cold War, very nationalistic America, you know, there was a lot of perspectives that were built from that time and that place. And when you start thinking it through an indigenous lens, the ideas of the Drake equation change. So for instance, one of the key components of the Drake equation is what are civilizations? And for Drake, that's really this American Western type of civilization that's built around technologies, particularly computer technologies and broadcast technologies. For many indigenous people, civilization has been here forever, whether it's Mi'kmaq or uh, Salish or whatever. You know, those are civilizations that have lived here as well in different ways. Frank Drake talked about how long civilizations last. And when he did this, he was afraid, you know, there was going to be a nuclear catastrophe, whether it's from nuclear bombs or explosions. And so, you know, civilizations were short-lived. While for many indigenous people, civilizations just last forever, kind of, you know, tens of thousands of years at least. Frank Drake asked, what does it mean to be intelligent? And the only definition of intelligent life we have is really humans. Mm. We always tend to sort of frame intelligence relative to humans, whether it's using tools and animals using tools or animals having emotions or something like that. But if you coming from an indigenous perspective where animals and plants and air are kin, intelligence is ubiquitous. The whole concept kind of doesn't make sense anymore. And if you just sort of feed these things through the Drake equation and put them together, you know, the Western perspective would suggest that civilizations are rare. Yeah. An indigenous perspective would suggest that perhaps civilizations are ubiquitous. They just don't look like Western society. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that kind of concept, then you have a galaxy team of life, but then you want to do something like SETI and search for it. Well, then you have to move away from all these techno signatures like Dyson spheres and radio broadcasts and, you know, laser SETI and all that stuff because those civilizations would tend to live in closer or in a less impactful way, they'd be harder to find. And in particular sense, our current methods are looking for pollution or deviations from biosignatures. Whereas an indigenous perspective would be the biosignatures exist, but the technology might exist without significant deviation. So we might not be able to see them. And so you get a very different perspective of what might be out there and how. Yeah. Wow. That's a really interesting perspective on the Drake equation that doesn't get talked about at all. I think that's also very important because, you know, it wasn't that long ago where some of the money that was for SETI breakthrough and search for life went into dredging oceans just off of uh, the Pacific off around another country looking for micrometeorites. You know, this is uh, something being done by professors at Harvard where they dredged up looking for these micrometeorites that may have come from an asteroid that they believed that asteroid was interstellar. But in doing so, they took material from that land or that ocean. That's another country, that's different peoples. There was a huge colonial aspect to that that came into play that really was 
not discussed very well or, or broadly and is largely being ignored by the people who ran that study. Yeah. Do you have any ways that you think we could better support indigenous astronomers and make sure things like this don't happen? Of course, there's the discussion about putting telescopes on native lands in Hawaii and Mauna Kea, but yeah, do you have any other ideas about about that kind of support? Yeah, I think that kind of support has to come at very many different levels. Mm -hmm. you know, of course, there's the respecting land rights. So where we put telescopes have to respect land rights, have to be, you know, have to be a good tenant. We have to know what consent means when it comes to indigenous peoples, which was one of those some of the issues in Hawaii as, as well as other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. We also have to, you know, think about what our textbooks are saying. You know, how many introductory textbooks, they'll mention indigenous astronomies within their ancient astronomy, and half of that ancient astronomy is really just Stonehenge. So, you know, your first year textbooks are like, you know, for the your Astronomy 100 or 1000 courses, you know, they're 500 pages, only a page talking about did astronomy. And it usually treats astronomers or indigenous peoples as an afterthought. So why would we see ourselves in the field if that's what textbooks say? And I think it's all about going through and appreciating that indigenous knowledge is play fundamental roles in our understanding. So the indigenous peoples aren't coming in and being forced to essentially learn a whole other methodology from what their experiences say, where you're coming through a Western school, and I did come through a Western school, you know, we'll teach you how to do that. You can end up losing out a lot of your, some of your identity because you have to fit in into a current model. Yeah. And, you know, I think like every part of EDI and inclusion, it's really about how are we supporting you know, indigenous rights and indigenous peoples and supporting the land. And, and having to do all three. You know, we can't just take knowledge without actually supporting people on our lands, for instance. That would be appropriation. Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, thank you so much for telling us all about your experience and ways to potentially even support Indigenous astronomers in the future. This is really interesting. I learned a lot. Next up, we have an interview with Bridget Kimsey, a graduate student at the American Public University. We're going to start off with an introduction, and so we would love it if you could introduce yourself. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Bridget Kimsey, also Apsit Memekwas in my language of Lenape. I am Lenny Lenape, a Delaware tribe of Indians from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I'm also of the Cherokee as well, and I'm also Irish, which I enjoy thinking of that my ancestry is around the upper portion of the Atlantic on either side. And I won't go all there, but I find that fascinating. And I'm trying to think, I am currently a graduate student finishing up my master's in space studies with a concentration in astronomy and physics. I hope to complete that by June with my MS. And then I will be continuing with my PhD in artificial intelligence. So I am a solar system ambassador for NASA, JPL, and my main income is as a published author. I have six books. They mostly are dealing with what my work for the last 30 years has been dealing with, which is looking at the biology through astrophysics, physics in indigenous science, and then biology through physics, astrophysics for the Western, Eastern, modern dominant culture we see right now? And then how do they work together? So I work in structures. I help on different projects that are dealing with structural issues, usually indigenizing them, basically, or helping with that process. Thank you so much for the introduction. 
I feel like you've teased a lot about what's going to be extremely interesting for this interview. And I had to stop myself from just asking question after question, basically after every sentence. But I want to start at the beginning. And I want to know, how exactly did you get into STEM? So how did you get into STEM to begin with? I start the conversation a little bit with knowing that I'm autistic. And I knew my special interest at the age of two and a half or three years old, which was trying to figure out how reality works and trying to do it in a way that felt honoring of how my physical, emotional, mental, and energetic health works. Elders and those that could see me and work with me by the age of three could see there was something different about me. And so there was help for that from a Western Eastern dominant lens, like special schooling, you know, things that really sparked my curiosity, a deep love of learning, growing up in labs. Most everyone in my family, either side is a professor or a scientist or a nurse or an admin in healthcare. So, you know, my interest in science was always there. There started to be this like, wait a second, there's the tribal world and there's the Western modern dominant culture. And so my dad presents as this at Johns Hopkins, and then he comes home and he presents as this out hunting or doing other things. He's like this in his lab and he's like this in Montana. So it's just, it became, I watched my grandmother do the same thing with code switching and it really took a number, a huge toll on their health, even though they were very intelligent and had worked their way very high up in um, STEM fields. So it kind of made me nervous, to be honest with you. I went a bit of a more creative route to start. For example, the creative arts really allow me to understand deeper about the human condition, about the power of language. And then elders, I lived with them for seven years. And that really began the process of looking at things in a new way. There could be layers, wanting to figure out reality. And now I was at the place where I was like, okay, they're two very different ways of looking at this data set of information, whether it is a sociology question, an education question, or just the simple fact of how the vibration of language and tone changes and alters different things around you, both the person as well as the actual atoms and molecules. You're changing matter. And so it began to see to me that what was being said by elders actually matched what I had seen in my scientific study, just preliminary, and also growing up around electron microscopes, which was my dad's specialty. So this stuff was both the science from a Western Eastern dominant culture and the indigenous tribal were both embedded in me pretty solidly. If you could elaborate a bit on what elders are, I mean, what does that mean a bit more? So this is, again, every tribe, every nation has their own way. And even though I grew up only surrounded by Lenape, when I got to NYU, I was living inside of the American Indian Community House. That being said, there's a lot of Lakota and Mohawk now mixed in here because the Lakota and the Delaware Lenape and Mohawk had a big influence with me while I was there. So I think the general consensus is the elder female has gone through menopause, for one thing. And then, you know, for some tribes, that might be right after menopause is complete. That's when your elder your stars. For others, it might be your elder, your mentor. They sort of come around you and they kind of let you know that you've shown you're ready. You know, every tribe, every nation, every nation is so different. You know, I kind of think of it as like the 
you, know, you think of Europe and you have, well, Austria is really different than Spain and Southern Spain is really different than Northern Spain. So I kind of think that it's hard to say when the eldership happens. I feel like right now I'm in what are called my knowledge barriers. So I'm a little late bloomer. I know a lot of autistic people are, especially autistic women. And it seems to work just fine inside of the indigenous culture. It's not considered, in fact, it's kind of, I've been nourished and nurtured to use my abilities and gifts um, in a way that is safe for me and others, which in the modern Western Eastern dominant culture really does come down to these tools and science as being the, the shamanic tools of the modern day. And I think it's great that indigenous people can we can appropriate that, you know, and continue our expansion and knowledge of astronomy from a different angle. And when I do talk in lectures or I do talk and write papers, I'm very clear about, I will talk with you about your Western dominant culture science. I'm, I'm fine with that. And you mean that sincerely, but I can't tell you you're the only scientific game going on on this planet. In terms of the Lenape people, what does science and what does astronomy specifically look like? Obviously, it might be called something different, but what is the science there and how does it differ from the Western dominant culture? So again, <laughs> the Lenape, my tribe is small. I don't know the right numbers. I remember one point, it was like 10, 12,000. And that's really spread out, not only through the country, but the world. I'm happy to be Cherokee too, and that there's a different, but back to the issue, AICH, American Indian Community House, brought me over to a private school and I taught for a year getting paid. I was the assistant to their eighth program, third grade. And my whole thing was teaching Lenape history because we were on Manhattan, which is a Lenape word place that is an island because that was part of Lenape Hoken or the original homelands thousand years. Yeah. So I knew that. I know, right? So I was like, all right, so I'm gonna I am tasked to learn everything I can about the Lenape and then teach it for a year. So I was like, okay, this is wasn't quite what I was expecting, but here we are. And you know, in all of that, the person is that family, the Kraft family, um Herbert Kraft or Robert Kraft the father dedicated his life to unearthing this material. And I don't really remember him getting into in any of his books. That doesn't mean that it wasn't there. Have to do some digging, but it isn't as clear to me as like the Mayans or the Ojibwe or some of the other ones. Like it's definitely in there, even inside of the Lenape talking dictionary, it talks about the Pleiades and the Milky Way. So it's there. I haven't found, you know, a source for that, but there's a really lovely person here at Swarthmore, at least on the East Coast, who's who's really revitalized the language and is teaching it at Swarthmore. And then we have our whole Lenape talking dictionary. Anyone can learn Lenape. But thinking of anything for Indigenous astronomy, I will come back to the Australian Aboriginals and the pre-colonial Mayans. And anyone is happy to do somewhat of an even, even they're only getting 10% of the information off because it's not being translated in the fullness, because it just, it's like a fish imagining itself out of water. The colonial mindset often cannot extract in a way that is honoring of the full picture. But what the Mayans were able to do, it's 
huge what the pre-colonial Mayans did. And some of it is translated correctly, some of it is not. But the point here, Mesoamerica, is there was no other influence. You know, we have over here where we think of astronomy being developed. You had Arab, you had this, you had that. You had everything kind of influencing each other. You did not have that here. And the same with Australia. You did not have that. You know, something that I had wanted, you know, had thought about doing for a dissertation was really going more deeply to see if I could figure out a way to show looking at that same nebula, two different ways of looking at it. And can we show that the science is sound and effective that both agree on? that both are doing, that the West East isn't cherry picking information and trying to let go of other information because it doesn't fit with a narrative or a political or any kind of agenda. And can, you know, can they each talk to each other? Because I think they can each give each other information they're missing right now. And that could really help humans in general and the field of astronomy. I am so happy that you were able to bring us your perspective and talk with us and I mean, I'm speaking for both me and Sabrina, but I learned a lot. No, I feel the same way. <laughs> same here. Thank you so much. Next up, we have a mini interview from Corey Gray, who is a gravitational wave detector operator at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. Okay, so to start off, can you tell us your name, affiliation, and pronouns? Okay. Nitaniku Mako Yosuko Ki Corey Gray. I just introduced myself and I gave you my Blackfoot name, which is Wolf's Path, and uh, my name, Corey Gray. I am Blackfoot and a member of the Six Gun Nation. My pronouns are he, him, his. I work at the National Science Foundation funded project called LIGO. LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. There is a network of ground-based gravitational wave detectors such as LIGO, and uh, in this network, the other two facilities are uh, Virgo, or the groups are Virgo in Italy or Europe, and then CAGRA, which is in Japan. My job title here is a Senior Operations Specialist. I joined the project in 1998, right after my undergrad. Awesome. Thank you. And can you tell us how you identify as an indigenous astronomer, including your tribe? For the most part, I'm indigenous. I'm Blackfoot uh, because of my parents. I'm Blackfoot on my mother's side. So that's a part of me. That's who I am. Through education and my studies and my career, I've uh, become a scientist, a physicist, or, or astronomer because of uh, my career path. For the most part, these two aspects of my identity are, have been separate, although over the years I've learned to integrate both of them together. And so I, I guess because of who I am and my choices in my career path, that is how I identify as an indigenous astronomer. And can you tell us how being indigenous has affected your trajectory through astronomy? I would say for the most part, uh, they've been separate. Being native and being someone in the sciences, uh, they're just two different worlds. I mean, when I think back to when I was a kid here at work at LIGO, I would every once in a while roll into the parking lot blasting pow music. So maybe my colleagues would know that I'm native or indigenous. And so that's maybe one thing. But for the most part, they were separate. Those first earlier years when we were building LIGO. Uh, I would say that everything changed, though. A big part of the change for me with connecting them together 
was science communication because I'm generally, I'm a shy person by nature. But when I learned about the importance of science communication, especially for being someone in a underrepresented group, being native or indigenous, that's when I learned the importance of it. And so with me, communicating science, a big part of it is being able to connect with the audience, being able to share your work in a way that's engaging and interesting and fun. And so a lot of my early audiences have been in native communities. And so I would cater a lot of my talks to focus on my audience, which were mainly indigenous. And then everything changed. And then a big, huge thing, I, I mean, we have to mention is this our big discovery, our first discovery, direct detection of gravitational waves in 2015. That's a historic discovery. We spent months preparing to announce it. I knew it was going to get a lot of uh, attention in the world and in history. And so it was a big opportunity. And so when we were ready to announce uh, a few months later in 2016, I, I jumped at the opportunity of asking my mother, Sharon Yellowfly, to translate the press release for us, the, the scientific document, into my tribe's language of Blackfoot. And last but not least, I wanted to ask, what piece of advice would you give to young Indigenous people interested in astronomy? I think the two main things that really come up with this is pride and representation. Being an Indigenous person in the sciences, you don't have re really that many role models that look like you. And it was even much more the case when I was a student, when I was younger. It's starting to change, but it's still a tough thing. It's, it, it's so hard and, 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 and sad to not have role models that look like you. And, and so that's why it's an important thing to change that. So I would encourage uh, Indigenous students and in the sciences to really understand that their journey is important. It's not, it's, it's more than them. It's, it's, it's a big, it's bigger than that. They need to be proud of what they're doing and, and their studies because they, they are all trailblazers and, and making that way for the, that next generation. So they need to be proud of what they're doing, recognize it is, it's unique and important. Um, <clears throat> their studies and their work and their, and their path will open a, a, a future to them, but not only that, it's already with their studies and their interest in the sciences, it's already an inspiration or a seed to that younger generation who looks up to them. So that's the other thing as far as representation and just being a, pr a proud science student and a proud uh, science professional. And so, yeah, I guess I would say just uh, if, if these indigenous people were uh, interested in astronomy, uh, and if they're interested and if they're outgoing, I would also encourage them to take their story and, and share their, their journey and their path in their communities, in indigenous communities, in underrepresented communities, just so that they can inspire that younger generation. That concludes Beyond Episode 85, Indigenous Astronomy Part 1, Living Descendants of the First Astronomers. In the next episode, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the history of indigenous astronomy. So you'll find a couple of astrobites in the show notes if you want to read ahead. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Thank you.